This is KZYX 90.7 FM Philo, KZYZ 91.5 FM Willits and Ukiah, 88.1 FM Fort Bragg. This program and support for mind, body, health, and politics comes from our members and Radiant Solar Technology. Radiant Solar Technology is ready to help plan power systems, advise on applicable incentives, conform to current codes, and prepare for future expansion. From solar panels to high-tech battery boxes, through sun, wind, and water, Radiant Solar Technology helps homes and businesses fill their renewable energy needs. Information at 707-485-8359 and RadiantSolarTech.com. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand your consciousness, stimulate your thought, enhance mental and physical health, and encourage community. Today, it is my distinct privilege and pleasure to have as our guest Dr. Ethan Nadelman, and you're going to want to stay tuned and listen to his interview. Dr. Nadelman is the founder and executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance, and while I'm doing my intro, those of you who are in front of a computer can Google Dr. Nadelman, Ethan Nadelman, N-A-D-E-L-M-A-N. You can Google him and start getting some background information. Human beings are a gregarious, fun-loving, cooperative species. However, a small percentage of humans are dangerous predators, and these predators often become leaders who dominate millions and create wars. To maintain one's self-esteem and sanity... It's imperative to question everything one reads and hears, especially when it comes from our government, sad as though that may sound. Instead of the government working for the people, the government too often works for a tiny minority of people who buy influence through legal bribery called lobbying. The government lies and deceives the people and until this system is changed, it can't be totally trusted. This is a very sad and some people consider dangerous state of affairs. The influence of money and the avaricious drive to what I call fiscal obesity is so great that even the professions of psychology and psychiatry cannot be taken at face value or trusted. The one most effective free treatment for emotional pain and anxiety turns out to be simply abdominal breathing. Simple as this may sound, maintaining a steady supply of oxygen is the most calming of influences. You want to meet, read more on this, of course, go to Google, type in breathing. You can check out some of Andy Weil's work on breathing. It's a very simple technique. All of you dear listeners can master it. It's faster than a speeding tranquilizer. It's therefore, it's in every person's self-interest to master this skill of breathing in all circumstances. This particular skill is literally what saved my life when I was run over 
by a Winnebago recreational vehicle some years ago. Both my legs were crushed. But I knew the skill of breathing. I maintained my breathing. I stopped the shock, and I was able to get help, and I'm here today. What happens is that in tense situations, we tighten our muscles. It just happens. Sometimes we hold our breath as a way of creating a stomach shield to tighten the muscles in front of, in front of the stomach. Remember, the legs and the head and the arms, the back, all have bones to protect the inside. But the stomach doesn't. The stomach only has muscle. There's no bone in front of it. And so we tighten our stomach as a way to protect ourselves. We cut off the oxygen. When we cut off oxygen, we increase anxiety. We increase discomfort. So the most important thing we can do for our mental and physical health is to be proactive in maintaining the highest level of our immune system, including keeping our anxiety down. We don't want to allow ourselves to succumb to illness, which requires treatment. Dr. Ethan Nadelman is an activist and champion of the human spirit and human rights. He is a champion of honesty and integrity. Because of his prominence and contribution, I'm going to take the time today to introduce him by reading a short biography. I hope you'll find it short. Ethan is the founder and executive, executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance. It's a New York-based nonprofit organization working to end the war on drugs. Ethan has been described by Rolling Stone as the driving force for the legalization of marijuana in America. He's a high-profile critic and commentator on U.S. and international control policies. Ethan was born in New York City, where he was raised in a Jewish family. His father was a rabbi. He earned B.A. and J.D., that's Doctor of Jurisprudence, and Ph.D. degrees from Harvard. And then he got a master's in international relations from the London School of Economics. This is a highly educated man. He taught politics and public affairs at Princeton from 1987 until 1994. While Ethan was at Princeton, he lectured and wrote extensively on drug policy, attracting considerable attention with his articles in such periodicals as Science, Foreign Affairs, American Heritage, and National Review. Ethan also formed the Princeton Working Group on the Future of Drug Use and Alternatives to Drug Prohibition. After Barack Obama won the presidential election, Matt Elrod, the director of the Drug Policy Reform Group, Drug Sense, filed an internet petition for Ethan as the new drug czar. Of course, any hopes in getting Ethan appointed were downplayed, but the petition will at least encourage President-elect Obama, it was said, to think twice about his choice of drug czar. You may recall that at first there were reports that James Ramstead, Republican from Minnesota, would be appointed to the post, but fortunately, or at least we'll hear from Ethan about how fortunate it is, Seattle Police Chief Gil Kurlikowski became the next head of the White House Drug Control Policy. It's an appointment that we've heard that Ethan and the DPA, Drug Policy Alliance, is optimistic about. We'll hear more from Ethan today. 
In 2012, Ethan spoke at the Human Rights Foundation San Francisco Forum, where he discussed the United States incarceration rates, which were at 743 people per 100,000. And he talked about how America's drug policies are affecting that number. In 1994, Ethan founded the Linda Smith Center, a drug policy institute that was created with the philanthropic support of George Soros. Six years later, the center merged with the Drug Policy Foundation, followed, uh, founded by Kevin Zies and Arnold Trebak. The merger became the Drug Policy Alliance, an advocacy, uh, advocacy group for drug policies grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. These four things are integral to what Ethan Nadelman is bringing to us. Science, compassion, health, and human rights. Remember those, folks. Science, compassion, health, and human rights. These are in contradistinction, I believe, to creating policy based on ideology, fear, morality. As the executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance, Ethan takes a public health rather than a criminal justice approach to the war on drugs. Ethan reminds us, as I know from my practice, that if I have two guys who need treatment for chemical dependence, and one's an alcoholic and one's a an heroin addict, my alcoholic is going to get treatment at some kind of a center, or for me, the heroin addict is going to get prosecuted as going to go to jail. Two different drugs, one goes to jail, one gets treatment. Why? Ethan's going to talk to us about that today. Ethan talks to us about Latin America. He states that drug policies in Latin America has been being brutal. He's an advocate for legalization. In the United States, Ethan's been a strong advocate of less restrictive cannabis pot laws. We're going to hear today where he is on that currently and what he says to his children. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Ethan. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Uh, thank you for having me on, Richard. It's great to do this with you. Let's start out with the movement to change drug policy in the United States. How are we doing right now? You know, on some fronts, we're doing remarkably well. Uh, on other fronts, we still have so far to go, Richard. I mean, as you mentioned, I've been involved in this a long time, and I got going in the late 80s when the war on drugs was at fever pitch. I mean, it was the country had descended into a sort of a mass, mass hysteria. It was like McCarthyism on, on, on steroids or something like that. And that's when we enacted all of these crazy mandatory minimum laws and when we really just just did horrific things, in not just in arrested incarceration disproportionately targeted at young men of color, but even around foreign countries, the destructions in Latin America, the Caribbean, you know, the failure to deal with HIV-AIDS in a responsible way, the propaganda, all of the terrible things associated with the drug war in the late 80s and early 90s. And it felt like in, throughout the 90s and early 2000s that two things were going on. On the one hand, the drug war had built up this tremendous momentum, and the pot, prison populations kept growing, the policies kept being implemented, people in law enforcement didn't even bother to ask what, what, what were the origins of the laws they were enforcing. And meanwhile, we were gaining a little traction, gaining public support, beginning to win incremental reforms. And then, as you and your listeners have seen the last few years, there's been two remarkable transformations, well, really three. 
One has been on marijuana, right, where we've gone from one-third of the country in favor of legalizing 12 years ago or 11 years ago to a majority now in favor of legalizing, almost half the states having legalized medical marijuana, four states having legalized marijuana more broadly, D.C. almost having done that. So the, the transformation in marijuana reform is of historic consequence, and the speed of the transformation is paralleled only by what's happened with respect to marriage equality. The second front is in the growing support, bipartisan support, White House-backed support, support by governors of both political parties to reduce mass, to end mass incarceration, to pull back on these horrific incarceration policies that we have in the U.S. But in that area, I would say that the reality has yet to match the rhetoric. Everybody agrees it's a major problem, more or less now. Even conservative Republicans who never would even talk this way before are going to get jumping on board. But we have a long way to go. Ethan, you, you have hand, been, let me yeah, I want to say something. Sure. You have been quoted as saying that America is crazy when it comes to drugs. That, yeah. that, that, that the international projection around the world of America's drug policy is a projection of American psychosis. That's right. What do you mean yeah, by yeah. that? No, that was right. That's right. That's a line I used in my uh, TED talk uh, last fall in Rio. Oh, I mean, by the I way, I'm going to interrupt you again. Folks, yeah. Ethan is referring to his TED talk. I highly recommend you go on Google, type in TED talk, and get to Ethan's talk. It's one of the most dynamic talks on the war on drugs that I have ever experienced. It's really excellent. Thanks for allowing me to interrupt you. I yeah, had to get that in. And the reason I use that phrase, uh, describing U.S. drug policy as the international projection of a domestic psychosis, was in part because I was speaking to an international audience, Richard. And there's a lot of people in Latin America who believe that the U.S.-led war on drugs around the world is not really about drugs that it's really a subterfuge for advancing other security and economic and political interests. And, what I, and I basically don't believe that's true. I mean, I believe that once you have a war on drugs, you, the U.S. government can figure out ways in which to make it work for other ends. But by and large, the global U.S.-led war on drugs is undermining U.S. economic, political, and security interests, right? We have no interest nationally if, as in the United States to having a, a $300 billion a year global black market in drugs. We have no interest in fueling major criminal organizations in Mexico and Latin America and West Africa and, and you name it, right? We have no interest in a lot of the harms that's result, that result from our failed prohibitionist policies, right? And so the point I was making is that if you look, why has the U.S. done this for almost a century? in ways that we're only beginning to peel back from now. And I'd say it really has to do with the fact that we are kind of crazy about drugs. Remember, we are one of the only countries in the Western world that prohibited alcohol. You know, most other Western countries had alcohol problems like we did, but they didn't go that way. And very few other Western civilized countries impose the kinds of penalties that we did on, on simple things like drug possession. Very few engaged in the propagandistic campaigns. Very few declared a war on drugs the way that we did for so many years. Very few were willing to let hundreds of thousands of people die of HIV related to injection drug use rather than adopt public health policies. So there has been something re remarkably irrational and emotional and I would say even crazy about the way that we think and deal with drugs in our society. And, and the, the, the victims, unfortunately, 
have been tens of millions of Americans who have lost their lives or been incarcerated or lost their freedom. It's been hundreds of millions of Americans who have seen, you know, taxpayer dollars, a trillion dollars over the last 40 years go down the drain, right? And it's also in foreign countries, which have been the victim of these failed prohibitionist policies. But where is this coming from? Is it that our leaders are crazy? Is it that no, we, the, is it no, the, we the people are so misguided in our basic yeah, puritanical it, background? Where? How do we get this way? It's, it's an unfortunate um, uh, uh, synergy between a variety of things. One, one is that the United States, more than most of the Western societies, a little bit like Scandinavia, has uh, a almost religious-like belief in sobriety, in abstinence, right? I mean, you saw this in the emergence of alcohol prohibition. I saw this that, in that, that the father of psychiatry, my, my profession, uh, Benjamin Rush, mm-hmm. said that, that angels in heaven would turn over if they could see people drinking alcohol. Oh, that's right. And he is seen, as, he's seen yeah. as the founder of, years later, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which was the group that eventually got prohibition. Exactly. This notion, that's, that this belief that, you know, my body is God's sacred vessel, and I have an obligation to my Lord and Maker to keep this body pure and free of <coughs> the impurities of mind-altering drugs. So that, that notion runs deeply in American culture and society. That's Not very important. All ethnic groups and all this sort of stuff, but it's deep. And, in a, and in, a, you know, in a population which ranks among the top in the Christian world for people saying they believe in God or see themselves as religious, that's significant. Secondly, you have this obvious parental fear about kids and drugs. And that's not distinct to us, but it's one in which our movement in the direction of doing anything possible to keep our kids safe from drugs and even from discussions of drug policy alternatives has manifested in that way. Thirdly, a very dynamic media, a media, a television-driven media in the 80s and 90s that gained dramatically by the imagery of the war on drugs. You know, it's one of the paradoxes that we reformers face is that examples of good drug policy make for boring TV, a well-run methadone program, a well-run heroin maintenance program, a well-run needle exchange program, honest drug education, cops doing their job properly. That doesn't make for good TV. Right, but narcotic squads banging down doors and and junkies, you know, reselling their methadone around the corner and people shooting up. That that does. And the last thing that's very is important: the inherent optimism, I mean, optimism, uh, cynicism, and opportunism of politicians. You know, many of the elected officials did not believe in the drug war policies that they were advocating. Some of them embraced it defensively because they were afraid of being t- attacked if they didn't do it. Others were true believers. But a huge number just went along because the country seemed crazed by this hysteria, and it seemed like this was the thing, you know, we had to do. How do we make the jump from believing our body is a temple that shouldn't be altered by any adult, any kind of uh, things that are going to change our consciousness, uh, including alcohol and drugs? How do we make the jump from that kind of ideology, religious belief system? How do we make the jump from that to disallowing university research into these mind-altering substances. That's a big well, jump. I mean, the I- disallowing university research is such a... I mean, it shows the ways in which the U.S. government has profoundly politicized science. You know, the ways in which the National Institute on Drug Abuse has had its agenda so profoundly shaped by political winds and political powers. You know, the ban 
You know, sometimes we say that any, any, any research study that's funded by a pharmaceutical company or a tobacco company or alcohol company should report the fact that the funding came from, you know, what the source of the funding were. We think that makes sense. But we don't hold um, studies and science to the same standard when the funder is the U.S. government. I mean, the U.S. National Institute on Drug Abuse, U.S. agencies provide 80 to 90 percent of all the funding for drug abuse research in the world. And what they don't report is that oftentimes they are only allowed to fund studies that look for harm, never studies that look for benefit, for example. Right? How can so the people? How can the people? How can at. the people be confident in their government when 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 what you're talking about is is prevalent? That they only well, fund one kind of science. This is very disruptive to those no, of us I, who I think. Mean, Richard, think about it. I mean, you know, there's no look. look the 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 the, the, the responsibility of any thinking human being in any society is to be skeptical of their government. That's what it I said. It doesn't mean to yeah. disown it. It doesn't mean you got to be an anarchist. Right. It does mean to be skeptical and understand the forces that are coming out. And by the way, in the same way that we need to be, or, or maybe not the same way, but in a similar way, as we need to be skeptical of things that are being said by all sorts of other powerful entities. I mean, who's going to believe that we should believe anything a pharmaceutical company says about its product? Or anything, you know, an alcohol company says about its product? Or anything a tobacco company says about its product? Or for that matter, anything an automobile company says about its product, right? I mean, what it means to be a thinking you know, human being and a responsible citizen, you know, is to quote-unquote question authority, right? That's what we have to do. Question authority, and the words you're hearing are from Dr. Ethan Nadelman. He's the founder and executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance here on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The telephone number here is 707-937-5103. I repeat, 707-937-5103 if you have a question for Dr. Edelman. Please give us a call. Well, yes, a thinking person has to be skeptical, but what a way to walk around in the world for the average person, to walk around with a sense of skepticism, which is, you know, it's a little tough on trust, isn't yeah. it? Well, I'm Richard, if you think about it, when I think about the way that minds change, right, how, how opinions shifted on the issue of marijuana legalization or how it shifted on gay rights and gay marriage, you know, marriage equality, uh, and what, you, what I really think in terms of the process of change is that there's a small percentage of the population that actually thinks about this stuff and that goes through a conscious change in the way that they're thinking about this thing and are aware of the fact, you know, and how they change their minds. But I think there's a big middle of the country who sort of follow. Right? Yes. And so long as everybody thinks that, you know, gay people should never be allowed to be married or that marijuana should remain criminal, you know, the kind of ordinary people in the middle, including intellectuals who focus on other issues and not this one, just kind of go along with the mainstream. I understand. And then once we succeed in shifting certain elite opinion and shifting certain more impassioned minorities, at some point people go, oh, yeah, sure, I support gay marriage. Oh, sure, I support legalizing marijuana. There's almost an unconscious shift. And so part of the role of people like me and organizations like Drug Policy Alliance is on the one hand to move public opinion, move thinking people, move elite opinion and discourse to the point where it begins to become normative and where people who just instinctively leaned against you a few years ago now instinctively vote with you for reasons they're not exactly sure how that change happened, but one way or another we help make it happen. How important is it, Ethan, that the origins of the war 
on drugs has racial overtones against people of color. Oh, I mean, I mean, Richard, to understand the war on drugs is to understand that this whole war on drugs has been disproportionately about race and racism and prejudice from its origins. You know, it's understanding that the, the first criminal prohibitions on, on opium and opiates were, 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 you know, they didn't happen when most opiate users were middle-class white women. They happened when the Chinese started coming to this country and you had xenophobic reactions against them. The first cocaine prohibition laws in the South in the first decade of the last century directed at, at black men, at Negroes, snorting this white powder, right? I mean, the first marijuana prohibition laws, you know, I'm not convinced it was about all, you know, the theories around DuPont and the, you know, uh, industrial interests. I think it was mostly about prejudice against Mexican migrants and Mexican Americans in the Southwest and the Western states beginning basically a hundred years ago. And then when you see thereafter, right, when we adopt these absolutely draconian penalties, Oftentimes, that's because the principal image in people's minds and legislators' minds is that this is about those people, those darker-skinned people. It's not about policies that are going to affect my community, my kids, my, my safer white middle-class background. And then, when you look at the ways in which the policies are targeted, where, who the police are disproportionately arresting and prosecuting, who's disproportionately more likely to go to jail or prison, whose opportunities for treatment lie disproportionately in the criminal justice system, not out. It's once again disproportionately poor people of color, and especially African Americans. So this has just permeated the drug war from its origins until today. And, you know, it, you know, I think one of the great advantages of drug policy reform, drug policy reform is not going to uproot racism in our society. It's not going to solve the issues around race in our society or others. But there's almost no question that basically rolling back and ending the war on drugs will do more to reduce the oppression of black people and brown people in this country than almost any other policy we can pursue. I'm going to take a call here, Ethan. Let's see, uh, Michael, let's uh, check that person in. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Yeah, um, I have a question for your guest. I wondered if he has any idea or speculation about the possibility of major pharmaceutical manufacturers uh, instigating these draconian drug laws as a means of controlling the market for the stuff that they're selling legally. I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you. Yeah, well, I, not, I would not say you can't really find them in the origins of this policy. I mean, there were elements of the battle between physicians and pharmacists over power, over who would control access to pharmaceutical drugs. So that was there. I think the principal evidence you find for what you're suggesting really can look lies in the origins of the Partnership for a Drug-Free America back in the late 1980s. That organization was the brainchild, as I understand it, of a very respected and admired man named James Burke. James Burke was the chairman of Johnson, I think CEO, and maybe chairman of Johnson & Johnson, the major pharmaceutical company. He was the one who's been lionized because he responded to the Tylenol scandal, the one where people were you know, substituting tainted Tylenol, in a way that's now taught in, in business school, Harvard Business School and elsewhere, about how to do this responsibly. He was the first guy 
that the first President Bush asked to be drug czar, and he turned that down. But he started the Partnership for Drug-Free America, relying very heavily on funding initially from alcohol, tobacco, and especially the pharmaceutical companies. And they, they focused their ad- advertising very, very much so on the issue of marijuana and to some extent illegal, other illegal drugs. If you think about it, if you Google on the issue of drug, right, what pops up when you Google the word drug? You'll pop up all sorts of things about drug trafficking and drug lords and, and you know, marijuana, cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, LSD. And then you'll also pop up all the stuff about pharmaceutical companies. And for pharmaceutical companies, their marketing challenge was, was distinguishing their, quote-unquote, good drugs from those other, quote-unquote, bad drugs in the midst of a very draconian drug war. And I think the Partnership for a Drug-Free America essentially did their bidding, whether consciously or not, in order to demonize these other drugs, most of which were less dangerous than many of the drugs that the pharmaceutical companies were, in fact, selling. Now, I should say the organization has evolved. It's now more focused on looking at issues around pharmaceutical drug abuse. They're becoming more nuanced in their messaging. But in terms of looking at the role of the pharmaceutical companies, um, I'd say you see it big time there. The other thing I should just mention is they have an interest in trying to pharmaceuticalize the cannabis plant before marijuana gets legalized more broadly. I mean, if you think about where marijuana legalization is headed, it's really going to be two things. On the one hand, there's going to be the emergence, there already is the emergence, of markets to sell marijuana both in whole form and vaporized form and oils for people who use it recreationally or in a, in a sort of generic quasi-medical way. And then there's going to be the products produced by the pharmaceutical companies which isolate specific ingredients and which are prescribed in very specific amounts for specific conditions. The pharmaceutical companies would love it if the broader marijuana legalization could be delayed long enough for them to monopolize the market for pharmaceutical cannabis products. But I think, fortunately, we're making enough uh, you know, progress right now that, that their hopes will not uh, you know, prove to be. I'm going to switch a little bit now, but a similar theme here, uh, Ethan. I, you know, I, I've traced a lot of the origins of the drug war to one man, to Harry Anslinger. You know who he was, of course, who was appointed by uh, Andrew Mellon because he was the husband of Andrew Mellon's niece. Uh, and he was appointed to be the first uh, chief of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. He was an abject a racist. Uh, I mentioned to you in an email that he, he had Billy Holiday, the jazz singer, handcuffed to her bed in Bellevue. Uh, because he was so obsessed with with her song about heroin, you know, Strange Fruit, and went on a major campaign. At the time, from what I've read, he prosecuted, or there were prosecuted in this country, 20,000 medical doctors who, until Harry came along, were taking care of the the drug dispensing in this country, much of which was to middle-class women. And what came out of that was... The creation, of course, of the criminal cartels who then were the only ones who could provide drugs. What's your theory on how is it that the smart guys who run some at least of the, of the government, and, and many of them are smart, how is it that they did not realize and have not come to grips with the fact that when you take the, the privileges away from doctors and nobody yeah. has privileges, then they're going to be, there's going to be a black market and you're going to create a criminal 
Kyle. Yeah, no, I mean, so many of us, you, t- yeah. you study sociology 101, and you know that if you make something illegal, criminals are going to come in and take over. How, yeah. how did that get missed, Ethan? Well, Richard, I'll tell you, I mean, you make it just about Anslinger, because I, I think sometimes we play, Ransom was an enormously influential character yes. on the evolution of American drug policy from 1930 to the early 60s, right? He had been the head of the foreign control section of the Bureau of Alcohol Prohibition, um, before he was appointed in 1930 to head the new Federal Bureau of Narcotics. So he came at this already with his experience in negotiating international agreements and promoting U.S. drug policies abroad, right? And interestingly, I mean, you, you, and you know, you, you, you correctly divided some of what he did into two categories. One was on the marijuana front. He initially was resistant to getting involved in the whole marijuana issue. When he came in, it was all about focusing on heroin, and the opiates and stuff like that. And it was only as more and more states passed their own statewide prohibition laws, driven largely by racist reasons, as I described before, that Anslinger realized it was time for the federal government to jump into this and federalize this thing. So he was not an immediate enthusiast, but once he jumped in, he jumped in with gusto, a kind of reefer madness gusto that was to some extent part and parcel of the times, although he obviously took it in very bad places. The second thing... With respect to heroin, you're exactly right there as well. I mean, you know, remember, this was a relatively small agency. I think it barely had 300 federal agents into the 50s or 60s, right? And so, they, you know, with their notion, though, when the Harrison Narcotic Act basically began to prohibit physicians from prescribing certain opiates for, you know, to patients... That was 30, 1937? Uh, Harrison was 1940. The Federal Marijuana Tax Act was 37. The Harrison Narcotic Act was 1914. Okay. But you're exactly right what happened there, Richard, that, that so long as people who were using or dependent upon opiates could get them from a physician and a pharmacist, there was not that much room for a violent criminal global black market to emerge. It was as you had to crack down driven by the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and its successor federal agencies, driven then by state medical licensing boards and things like that, that you had more and more of a crimp put on this access to legal opiates, right? And you saw the emergence then in the 60s and 70s of the French connection and opium, you know, heroin smuggling and all that sort of stuff. I'll tell you, Richard, I remember years ago reading the book Junkie by William Burroughs. Oh, yes. And he describes his life of being a heroin and opiate addict in New York City in the 50s. And the way that people survived back then was they depended upon getting their drugs from pharmacists and doctors who were either naive or corrupt. Yes. And, you know, people could look at that leaky, that leaky medical pharmacy system and say that was terrible, it was not, you know, blah, 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 blah. But if you think about it, Given the choice between a leaky pharmacy medical system that's providing addicts with pharmaceutical versions of the drugs they want or need in a fairly nonviolent, semi-regulatory way, or a non-leaky system in which those same consumers are turning to the black market and, and you know, totally illegal heroin and things like that, I would think that the lesser evil would be the leaky system rather than the tightly run system that produces the global black market. I would think the leaky system is way ahead of what we have in Mexico where the narcotic cartels seem to be perhaps controlling the entire government of Mexico. Yeah. I mean, although I like, but we have to put this caveat on it, Richard. 
which is, I agree with you entirely, that when you have a, a U.S.-driven drug war, which has resulted in 60 to 100,000 people dead in Mexico in the last eight or nine years, right, a significant number of them, if not a majority, who were not involved in the dealers and markets to begin with, um, you know, that that's a major evil that needs to be ended through finding ways of repealing drug prohibition. On the other hand, when you look at the fact that, that overdose fatalities now exceed auto accidents and are the number one cause of death, accidental death in America, and that a majority of those overdoses, which are actually technically not overdoses, they're actually fatal drug combinations, that a majority of those involve pharmaceutical opiates, what it makes you realize is that ending prohibition or reforming it in a major way is crucially important, but at the same time, we need to get a lot better about dealing with the availability of opioids and, to some extent, benzos and, and tranquilizing drugs in this society. Because far too many people are dying unnecessarily because of the lack of effective education and regulation and, and harm reduction measures for dealing with this phenomenon. And you know, those, those fatalities you're talking about, which exceed uh, automobile deaths, by the way, are from prescription drugs, not from uh, heroin and well, illegal it's about, drugs. It's, it depends on... Depends on the state. It's probably about 60% or more from pharmaceutical opiates and 40% from heroin, and the numbers vary depending upon where you live and over time. Okay. Well, we've been talking a lot about history. We're going to talk about where we're going forward, but first I'm going to take a caller here, Ethan. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hello. Hello. Yes, hello. Hi. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Uh, with all due respect, White is a color. Crayola still sells white. I can get white paint at the paint store. I think it's an issue of one group projecting its sins upon the other, and that is unethical, unfair. We will never move forward until we change the dialogue. Thank you. Thank you very much. Are you making reference to white people and black people by the comment? Uh, we lost her. She took it off the air, Ethan. It's funny, Richard, because if that's what she's talking about, I remember one time giving a speech, and, and, and I referred to people of color, and I was just kind of riffing, and I was saying, you know, there was a professor at Harvard who used to refer to white people as pink people, right? Let's, let's get more realistic about, you know, the colors we're talking about. But, but the broader point, I, I don't know if she was arguing with about, about the underlying ways in which racial and ethnic prejudice have really driven this drug war, you know, from its origins. So let's go future now. How are you feeling about what's going on in California? What can you give us about a California update on, on, on this war on people? That oh, we call, my this war on people that we call a war on drugs. I, every time yeah. I hear war on drugs, I want to say it's a war on people. Nobody's going in it. It's a war on people. People. Right. By the way, just as an aside, we have 5% of the world population in the United States. What percentage of the world's incarcerated people do we have? Well, you know, the number we've used for a long time is less than 5% of the world's population, but almost 25% of the world's incarcerated population. So, and those numbers are, shit, you know, now it's approaching more like 4% and 21%, but it's basically, you get the idea. Never before in the history of democratic societies has a country incarcerated this large a percent of its population, right? The United States ranks first in the world in per capita incarceration rates. Our rates of incarceration are five to ten times the rates of most other advanced industrialized societies. The Russians are in second or third place, and we've left them in the dust. 
When right. I was a little boy growing up, I would have expected to hear these numbers about a place like Russia, a totalitarian place. I might have expected that during the 30s or 40s, uh, to, that, that's, a, that's Germany, Nazi Germany. Right. You're exactly. telling this is our country that we love. This our, is our I, country I, I, that we love. It's true. As you're saying when you're growing up, that this is not consistent with American history. America's incarceration rates were much closer to the global average until the 70s. And it was really the war on drugs that as, you know, Nixon launched it, but then as it really picked up steam in the 80s and 90s, that really thrust onto us into this kind of humiliating historical posture of world's greatest incarcerator. Very humiliating. And that's the thing that we're trying to work our way back from right now, um, but it's a long way going because a lot of the policies that we adapted and embraced over the last 30 years, they're locked in pretty ferociously. There's a very powerful prison industrial complex that's doing everything it can to keep any of the reforms from being too significant, right? I mean, there's powerful economic forces, jobs forces, existential forces. There's habits of mind among the public and politicians. So this is not going to be an easy thing to roll back. Let's talk about know? California again. Come on. Well, I mean, look, I mean, be, let's to put the marijuana thing aside for one second and yeah. to say that, you know, there has been significant progress in reducing California's prison population in recent years. Some of that's been driven by litigation and the courts, which have forced Jerry Brown and the prison system to reduce incarceration. Some of it's been driven by successful ballot initiatives in which my organization, DPA, um, certainly did not play a leadership role, but helped in various ways with the drafting and the campaign. So we saw the reform of the three strikes law in California in 2012, and then we saw the passage of Prop 47, which reduced the penalties for nonviolent uh, drug possession offenses and a bunch of other crimes from a felony to a misdemeanor. So we're seeing a significant drop in California's prison population. Unfortunately, for every three people who are being removed, you know, reduced in prison, probably one and a half to two are being redirected to local jails, which is in some respects an improvement on state prisons, but it still means that it's, it's, it's a net benefit, but not a gross benefit of the ho- sort that we hoped. The issue of police and prosecutors seizing people's property and cars because they're suspected of, be, of possessing drugs or being involved in other things, and of those law enforcement agencies keeping those properties, right, what's known as asset forfeiture and the abuses of asset forfeiture laws. Right. We're seeing some real major movement on that issue in California right now. Drug Policy Alliance is leading that effort with a range of allied organizations, including both the ACLU as well as organizations that more are, are more on the right or libertarian. Um, last year, I'm proud to say that some bills we worked on on things like, you know, access to sterile syringes to reduce HIV and Hep C, that we've made some real progress in getting those sorts of laws through. So there is some incremental progress happening on all those fronts. Now, when it comes to marijuana, I mean, you know, California is almost certainly going to have a marijuana legalization initiative on the ballot in 2016. Uh, DPA, you know, is deeply involved. My organization, Drug Policy Alliance, is deeply involved in drafting that initiative. There's a whole bunch of initiatives trying to make the ballot. But in terms of the one that will probably have the greatest amount of resources, the greatest chance of victory, Drug Policy Alliance, my colleagues in California, I mean, we have offices, remember, in L.A. and San Francisco, and a National Legal Forum's office in Oakland, and a lobbyist in Sacramento. We've been having hundreds of meetings with various stakeholders and, and experts, 
We've been drafting the thing, but there's a lot of competitive interest at play. It's hard to know exactly what's going to go on that on that ballot. Uh, you know, next year. I am concerned about the possibility of there being more than one initiative on the ballot to legalize marijuana. And the reason I'm concerned is because the, the research we have suggests that if you have two initiatives on the, on the ballot, both for marijuana legalization, that undermines public support for both of them, right? So my great hope is there will be one very far-reaching, effective, implementable, you know, winnable initiative on the ballot in 2016 because California deserves to have the best marijuana law in the country, and people are looking to it, not just around the U.S., but all around the Americas for leadership on this issue. Tell us about the implications of Washington and Colorado and their laws. Well, the Colorado one um, is is the model I prefer. I mean, I think it was one that had to benefit the, the fact that Colorado already had a well-regulated medical marijuana regulatory system to, to build off of, and they were therefore able to design, and I should say Drug Policy Alliance was quite deeply involved in the drafting and the on-the-ground campaign. Um, so I think that model's being effectively implemented, Richard. I was just in uh, Denver a few weeks ago. The shops are up and going. The tax revenue's coming in. There have been a few problems, especially with the edibles, but I think the state is very serious is taking very seriously the need to regulate those effectively. I participated in a forum um, with Governor Hickenlooper and when Hickenlooper was asked about this, he said that you know when this law first passed, he said in 2012, he said I would have happily repealed it if I had the power to do so. And then he said, but I don't think I would do that now. He said I think the law is basically working. When he was asked what most surprised him about marijuana legalization in Colorado, his response was how responsible most of the marijuana industry has been. And when he was asked about the principal national issue involving marijuana legalization, he stressed the importance of allowing access to legal banks um, for the marijuana industry, which is still prohibited. So I think Colorado's worked out really well. Washington State, which is the one where my organization contributed almost a third of the funding, in part because we felt it was essential for Washington State to win. You know, that initiative has been a little more flawed. I'm less satisfied with the specific language. Uh, It's not been implemented as quickly. But nonetheless, the shops are getting up and going. Uh, There's lots of bumps. And I think five, ten years from now, we're going to see that both Colorado and Washington provided major leadership. More significantly than that, and regardless of the details, When Colorado and Washington voted to legalize in 2012 and did so both with margins of 55 to 45, with both initiatives getting more votes than the guys who won the race for governor and attorney generals in those states, it basically created global attention. It made the possibility of legalization feel real to people all around this country. It was catalytic in parts of Latin America. I think it galvanized some Western European countries to begin thinking afresh about how to do this. So it truly had global significance. I've been told by uh, Johan Hari, who wrote Chasing the Scream, and Dr. Carl Hart, who wrote High Price, he's the professor at Columbia University, that, that as a result of their books having to do with the topics we're talking about today, they're being uh, invited by countries all around the world to uh, consult on drug policy. What can you tell us about what's going on around the world, particularly Latin America, but some of in Europe as well, with regard to legalization and new policies? 
sure, Richard. Well, I, mean, I should say Carl Hart, who's a close friend of mine and also on the board of the Drug Policy Alliance, is spending the summer in Switzerland where he's working a book in part about heroin maintenance. And Johan Hari, whose book has had a wonderful impact, recently gave a very good TED Talk a few weeks ago that I encourage your listeners to watch as well. Now, I think, you know, paradoxically, on the issue of marijuana reform, that's where the United States is leading the world. I mean, not necessarily at the level of the federal government, but at the level of civil society, public opinion, and state government, I would say we are now being a model when it comes to legally regulating marijuana, both for medical purposes and other purposes. So, you know, it's, so, it's kind of bizarre for me, because as I travel around the world talking about drug policy, I typically start off by apologizing for the horrific things that my government has done in the name of the global war on drugs. But I also then say that I now feel proud as an American that we're providing that kind of leadership for the rest of the world. Where we do see examples abroad that we need to emulate, it's especially in Western Europe and to some extent in places like like Canada, Australia, New Zealand. And I'll just give a few, about three major examples. One of them is the Portugal policy adopted 15 years ago where they made a commitment that nobody goes to jail for simple drug use or possession, right? That if you have a drug problem, you're going to get dealt with through the healthcare system. You are not going to be drug tested. You are not going to be forced into a jail simply for using drugs. If you're really a bad guy, the Portuguese say, we'll catch you for something else. And there's a very good study in the British Journal of Criminology and elsewhere that shows that that policy has been successful in reducing drug abuse and drug-related disease and crime and incarceration. The second example is allowing long-term heroin addicts who have tried to quit by every means possible and not succeeded to obtain legal pharmaceutical-grade heroin from a clinic. Can't take it home, but they can get their medication and counseling and help and pharmaceutical heroin. And once again, the evidence is now in from half a dozen countries published in New England Journal of Medicine that these heroin maintenance projects have reduced death, disease, crime, and suffering, saved taxpayers money, and even helped many people to put their drug addiction behind them. And the third one, which is yet to be implemented, is a law that was passed in New Zealand, which was confronting a major issue with the use of synthetic cannabis. And New Zealand passed a law to allow the producers of synthetic cannabis and potentially other synthetic psychoactive drugs to submit the products that they were producing to an FDA-like regulatory approval system. And if they could demonstrate that there were minimum risks and harms associated with these drugs, then these drugs could be approved for legal over-the-counter sale, even though they were being used primarily for recreational purposes. Those three policies, the Portuguese decrim policy, the, 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 the European heroin maintenance policy, and the uh, New Zealand regulatory approval process, those are the forefront of where we need to move in this country on drug policy reform over the next decade and generation. And that is going to be a major, if not the major, thrust of Drug Policy Alliance in the decade to come. Love hearing that very much. Let's take that call, Michael. Thank you. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi. I really, really appreciate the show, and your guest is very knowledgeable. But, Doctor, I wish you would make a crucial correction for something you said a few minutes ago. You said that Strange Fruit was Billie Holiday's song about heroin. I'm sure that was just a slip of the tongue because Strange Fruit was about lynching. 
and that needs to be corrected, okay? Well, I'll agree with you that it might have been also about lynching, but I also know that it was about heroin. Strange because- Fruit has no referral to heroin, doctor. you got to listen to it. It was all about lynching. Fair enough. It I'll- had nothing to do with heroin. I am an ethnomusicologist and a jazz lover, and I've been listening to that song and playing it for 35 years, and there is no reference to heroin in Strange Fruit. It is strictly about lynching. you got to listen to it again. Okay, thank, thank you. thank you for talking about the racism in the war on drugs and the prison industrial complex, because that is a crucial element of our country. Thank you. Thank you for the call. I may sit corrected. I'll listen to the, uh, to the song again and, uh, and do some research and talk about it another time. But Richard, on your bigger point, you know, people oftentimes commented that the quote-unquote, you know, uh, Lexington Federal Prison with its quote-unquote narcotics farm, you know, there were points in its history where people said you could hear one of the best jazz bands in America just among the people who had been sent there because of their addiction to heroin. Yes, that's right. I remember Cab Calloway. Uh, uh, let's um, let's talk a little bit about your uh, sentiments and thoughts about uh, the Obama uh, administration and their pers- their position on uh, the war on people, known as the war on drugs. Well, I mean, I would really divide Obama into three Obama's administration on the drug war into three phases. The first was the first nine months or so, where I was very pleasantly surprised. Obama made three commitments when he was running for office, that he would ease up on the whole medical marijuana thing, that he would approve federal funding for needle exchange, and that he would make some efforts to deal with this whole, you know, harsh mandatory minimum sentences around crack cocaine and powder cocaine with a racially disproportionate impact. And somewhat to my surprise, he made good on all three of those areas. The next three to four years, I would say, were, I think, remarkably disappointing. His drugs are Gil Kolakowski, the former Seattle police chief, who many of us thought would be fairly uh, advanced in his work, turned out to be a significant disappointment. Um, so really, but people in the administration would say to us, look, if we get a second term, we're going to make good on reform. And to their credit, I will say that beginning in the summer of 2013, in the first year of the office, they really started making good. That's when Eric Holder, the attorney general, started prioritizing, you know, rolling back incarceration. Uh, He let people know that he hoped this would be part of his legacy. They pushed forward on multiple fronts, both in terms of changing federal policies, supporting congressional legislation, and in their public statements. And then the other major area was in terms of marijuana reform. You know, that's where in the summer of 2013, the, the administration gave Colorado and Washington a qualified green light to proceed with implementing their new laws. And it's where you've really seen a kind of, I wouldn't call it le- bold leadership, but it's sort of leadership in a kind of tacit way by the administration in allowing these marijuana legalization um, policies to proceed. And then the third thing, which has been not as bold as I've liked, but at last we have a federal drug czar, a guy named Michael Botticelli, who even though he's, he's not good on the marijuana issue, he still mouths the same old shibboleth. And even though he's not pushing the envelope on some of these European and foreign-style innovations, he is at least finally taking seriously the notion of treating drug addiction as a health issue. Now, some of it's still in the old kind of regressive control model. 
you know, they haven't been sufficiently critical of drug courts and, and of the ways in which poor people can only get drug treatment in the criminal justice system. But he has provided some beginnings of leadership in embracing harm reduction and the effort to reduce um, overdose fatalities and supporting needle exchange programs and talking a lot more sense than any of his predecessors did. There's still a long way to go in that respect, and, you know, I can be critical of him on many fronts, um, but at least it's a breath of fresh air. What can you tell us about research into psychedelic medicines such as MDMA, LSD, psilocybin? Well, I mean, I think you've had my good good friend and ally Rick Doblin on your show, Richard, and yes. there's no better expert than he is on this stuff. But I will say that it's nice to see the research um, moving forward slowly with the government actually funding a few studies. It's no longer just foreign governments that will sometimes support these sorts of things. The findings have been remarkable. Um, I cannot wait for um, Michael Pollan's book to come out. You know, Michael Pollan, the famous writer on food, yes. who wrote a wonderful piece in the New Yorker a few months ago about the psychedelics research and is now working on a book on the subject. So I think that will help advance the debate. I think that Rick Doblin is going to go down in history for his historic role in sort of advancing uh, government-funded research on psychedelics. By the way, Rick Doblin is the founder and director of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. If you Google it, it's MAPS, M-A-P-S. Thank you, Ethan. And I think more broadly, Richard, that generally, that, that there's no better area in which to talk about the benefits of prohibited substances than with psychedelics. I mean, we obviously see with marijuana in terms of their medicinal benefits, but the findings and the evidence about the broad benefits of psychedelics for many people um, is just outstanding. And I think the, that that in itself, I think, is going to help stimulate a broader dialogue and one that helps pull us away from prohibition. We've got about a minute left. I want to hear what you have to say to young people or to your children about using drugs. Sure. Well, what I basically say is to teenagers, first, don't do drugs. And what I say secondly to them is do not do drugs. You're too young. And the third thing I say to them is, but if you do do drugs, there's some things I want you to know. Because my bottom line, as your parent who loves you to death, ultimately is not did you or didn't you. My bottom line is are you going to come home safely at the end of the night and grow up and make me healthy grandkids? That's my bottom line. Safety first. And with that, I would encourage your listeners to look and get a hold of our booklet, Safety First. You know, you know, authored by my colleague Marsha Rosenbaum, who you know has really led the effort around sensible harm reduction-driven drug education in California and around the country. She was successful in listing the California PTA to embrace our approach to you know adolescent drug use um, back already over a decade ago. Got to stop you right there. I'm getting a signal. We've had Dr. Marsha Rosenbaum on the program. Perhaps we'll have her again, pull her out of retirement. Ethan, thank you so much for being on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics today. It's always a pleasure and a privilege. Ethan Nadelman, founder and director of the Drug Policy Alliance. Please look them up on Google. Look at them, read about them, educate yourself about what's going on with drug policy in the United States. Thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend Mike DeLaura. Please join me again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. 
Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health really is worth fighting for, it's worth breathing for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thank you.